This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. And now, from New York, here's Josh King. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and you hear it first on POTUS. This week, as President Barack Obama prepares his State of the Union and Chris Christie works to rebound off his State of the State, and as I get ready to head off to the World Economic Forum in Davos, the high and the mighty are in the spotlight. And yet, we'll ramp back this episode and ask the existential question, do ordinary people change the world? Last week, we talked with Stephen Ives about Cassius Clay 50 years ago. After pummeling Sonny Liston, he changed his name to Muhammad Ali and has been changing the world ever since. Nelson Mandela, who died last year, changed the world with his humble heroism. We're honored this week to have Brad Meltzer, New York Times bestselling author of nine novels, most recently The Fifth Assassin, four graphic novels, TV shows that are near and dear to my heart, and now a new series for a dramatically younger audience, of which my son Toby and daughter Annabelle are devout readers. I am Abraham Lincoln, and I am Amelia Earhart, out this week from Dial Books, part of the Ordinary People Change the World series. Then, at the bottom of the hour, in these serious times, our first full-fledged comedian on polyoptics, Paul Mercurio, the pride of Providence, Rhode Island, and host of the wickedly popular Paul Mercurio Show, frequent contributor to the Fox News Channel and one of the hardest-working guys on the stand-up circuit. He's had a long-running relationship with The Daily Show and The Colbert Report, and his big break came courtesy of Jay Leno. With Jay about to sign off, we'll talk about his legacy in comedy, and Paul and I will chat about tomorrow's epic 15th matchup between Tom Brady and our New England Patriots and Peyton Manning of the humorless Denver Broncos. That's at the bottom of the hour. But first, we welcome to Polyoptics a real idol of mine, a man who uses history, mystery, and politics and storytelling like no one in literature and television today, Brad Meltzer. Welcome to Polyoptics. Thanks, Josh. Good to see you, pal. Uh, why now the, the pivot from your amazingly successful series of novels that so much of it is set and paced and based in Washington, D.C. We'll talk about your TV work, but for a decidedly different audience, these two new books that are out today. Yeah, you know, and and maybe if I'm a smart guy, I should just do what I'm known for doing and continue doing them, and I guess that'll bring the steadier paycheck, but uh, that means I would have the exact same job and do the exact same thing for the rest of my life, and um, and one, I'm too short attention span to do that, as I know you are as well. Um, but the truth is, uh, it's for my kids. That's it. It's for my children. This book series started because I was tired of my own children looking at reality TV show stars and loudmouth athletes who, as heroes, and I tell them all the time, that's fame. That's being famous. Being famous is very different than being a hero. And I thought, you know what, I can give them so many better heroes than that. I can give them heroes like Rosa Parks and Amelia Earhart and Abraham Lincoln. And so what we do in the books, uh, and they're illustrated, they're nonfiction illustrated children's books, and they're a whole line, each one for a different hero. I am Amelia Earhart, I am Abraham Lincoln. But the goal is, is you don't just see the stories that you know about these heroes, you also see them when they're kids. So you see Amelia Earhart when she's a little girl. You see Lincoln when he's a little boy. And the result, I hope, is for all the readers, for especially for us as, a, as parents, is that you really see the power and the potential that's in each of us because it's right there when they're little. The illustrator of the books, Christopher Eliopoulos, is here too, and we'll hear from him in a bit. Uh, Brad Meltzer, what do you, how old are your kids now? So I, have, uh, I range from 5 to 8 to 12. And how do you and your wife deal with the conflict of 
TV versus iPad versus words on a page. I mean, this is it, right? This is the reason to write the books. I was, I mean, I, and Chris knows this, I'm constantly after my kids to put down the phone, put down, you know, the TV, put down the video game. And I think the only way, if you want to stop it, is you got to give them something better. You can't compete, right? You can't, you have, if you can't just say you can't do it, you have to give them something better. And, and I will tell you that my kids usually are completely unimpressed with what I do for a living. They don't care about my thrillers. My, my daughter recently asked me, why does anyone want your autograph in their book? Right? That's how my daughter sees it, because nothing your parents do will ever impress you. With these set of books, it's the first time my kids are like, we like it. And I'm like, what? You, you like it? Who, who took my children and replaced them? You know, I mean, but if I tell my daughter that Amelia Earhart flew across the Atlantic Ocean, you know, my daughter shrugs and says, well, so does everyone else, you know, these days. She's not that impressed. But if I tell her that Amelia Earhart, when she was seven years old, built a homemade roller coaster in her backyard, and this is a true story, that she took a wooden milk crate and she put roller skating wheels on the bottom. She lugged it up to the roof of her tool shed and put two giant wooden planks off the roof, came careening off the roof, down the planks, hits the ground, goes flying through the air. That's the first time truly that Amelia Earhart flies as a little seven-year-old girl. Then she crashes, gets up, is like, that was awesome. Now my daughter looks at that story, which is in this book, and says, Amelia Earhart's just like me. She's amazing, she's daring, and most of all, she's fun. And that's what the goal of the book is, to bring these heroes back to life. That's what I Am Amelia Earhart's really about. Six-year-old Annabelle curled up with I Am Amelia Earhart the other day, and Christopher Eliopoulos, uh, she was given probably a 10-page starter book in her first grade class, also about Amelia Earhart. It also mentioned the roller coaster story, but how did you approach putting color and visual to that story? Well, working with Brad, he tends to bring it out in me. He tends to de describe it in detail, what he's thinking about, and then we play back and forth what we're doing. And we actually, in this version, show like multiple steps, almost like animation of her going off the roof and, uh, you know, sometimes you just have to have fun with it and be excited by what you're drawing. So Your training is in, in animation graphic novels? Mostly comic books, 25 yeah. years in comic books. So I, I've worked with everybody from Spider-Man to Batman to Superman to Captain America. So this is these are the real heroes, though. Yeah, but what he's not saying is I'm. What he's really trying to say is I'm the biggest pain in the rear end. Like not when I because when I write these scripts, I write every detail of what I want seen. You know, she should be coming off the roof at this angle. The camera should be on the ground. We should be looking up at her. She should be. I mean, and then he has to deal with it. And then he'll send me a pencil. and I'll say, uh, what about this? Can you change this? Can you do that? And and he's really not saying that I'm I'm completely a pain. But and, to and, me, you got to hit it perfectly. And I will say, I, it always comes back to my original drawing. So yeah, it's, that's true. <laughs> I'm literally like a person who can't accept the original. Back to your Jack and Bobby, Greg Berlanti, Steve Cohen days with all that stage direction. Oh, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, t we, we are wanting to talk about <clears throat> can ordinary people change the world? And Brad Meltzer, I want to begin really by starting a little bit with your story and uh, a, an oath that has been recited for 20 years that I think you're the author of. I want to hear it. I will get things done for America. To make our people safer, smarter, and healthier. I will bring Americans together to strengthen our communities. Faced with apathy, I will take action. Faced with conflict, I will seek common ground. Brad Meltzer, the first time I heard that oath was on the South Lawn of the White House at a major event that I orchestrated, President Clinton guiding kids up the South Lawn for the first ever administration of the oath of AmeriCorps members. 
What put you in charge of putting pen to paper for that oath? A man named Eli Siegel. Eli Siegel. Yeah, so the Eli, Siegel, Eli Siegel. Siegel. Yeah, the late great Eli Siegel uh, gave me my first real job. And what happened was I came out of college, and Eli was working at a place called Games Magazine. And he Up said, in Massachusetts. I'm in Massachusetts in Boston. And, and he said, I'm going to be your mentor. I'm going to take you under my wing. I worked for him the summer prior. And he offered me a full-time job, said, don't go to law school. I want you to come here. If you hate it, you leave after a year with some money in your pocket. And he said, I went to law school. I never used it. Come here, and I'm going to be your mentor. I'll take you under my wing. Seemed like a great deal. And when I got there, um, he was getting phone calls every day, first from a guy named Paul Songus, then from a guy named Bill Clinton. And every day, a different presidential candidate was calling him, saying, run my campaign. And, and I kept saying, who the heck is this guy, Eli? I mean, I knew who he was, but I didn't know his background as as well. And... Um, and I remember he said he was taken off to uh, to eventually do work on a guy named Bill Clinton's campaign. In fact, I went down the Little Rock to visit Eli. But the week I got to the job full time, Eli left to take over the Clinton campaign. And he obviously that's why I started writing is basically because I didn't know what to do. My mentor was gone. I felt like I couldn't really leave. I made a commitment to be at the magazine with him. So I did what any of us would do when I thought that I've wrecked my life. What anyone would do when they think they wrecked their life is I said, I'm going to write a novel. So I started writing this novel uh, at night, still working at games, and a year later, Eli- Was that first counsel? No, it was actually before. It was a novel that never got published, got me 24 rejection letters. There were only 20 publishers, I got 24 rejection (laughs) letters. But um, Eli basically said to me a year later when when Clinton won, he said, come, I'm working at this place called AmeriCorps, we're going to launch this thing called AmeriCorps, and I want you to be my speechwriter. And I got there the, the summer before the launch, and he said to me, I need an oath, can you take first crack at it? And so it was myself and uh, Jody Cantor and Robert Gordon, and I took that first crack. That that middle stanza you hear, faced with apathy, I will persevere. That's, I mean, I remember putting that in there. I really wanted. Well, because we had set up the risers, huge bleacher, uh, on the South Lawn, and the plane expected to do a even sloping landing up the South Lawn, but he gets down to like a hundred feet, and he says, "What the fuck is a huge right. bleacher doing there?" and crashes. Over the bleacher and into the. Oh, into I remember. The White here, House. I remember literally sitting there when they told us that the plane had hit the White House. I was in New York at the time. There was a New York event. There were DC events were all over, and and they didn't know for a moment there was you know what we're going to do, and we didn't know if the event could still take place. And then they moved it inside, and I had a feed. I don't even know where I was, but somehow I had a feed of that Oval Office shot. And I remember just going, is he going to say, like, it was almost like if the plane hit the White House, then he's not going to say my words anymore. That's how selfish I was. I was like, the, the plane hit the White House, but what about me? What about the president saying my words? And uh, and I've seen now president after president deliver it. It's still amazing to me. In fact, when we just celebrated the 20th anniversary, uh, I did a, I did a, a, a video for them. And it's, it's still like yesterday to me. I mean, I met my wife in the White House, and I remember that oath so clearly. And even today, 20 years later, when it's time for us to sort of roll up our sleeves and accomplish a task, we say, today we're going to get things done for America. That was, I mean, I appreciate that. Thank you. That's the nicest compliment. Uh, I mean, I'm so proud of that oath. So AmeriCorps does not a major career make. How do you then say, Brad Meltzer, it's time to get into the real publishing business? Well, at AmeriCorps, uh, during that summer, I said, I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letter on my first book. And I said, if they don't like that book, I was, listen, I was 24 years old. So I was young and stubborn. I was 23 at the time. And I said, if they don't like that book, I'm going to write another. And if they don't like that, I'm going to write another. And the week after I got my 23rd and 24th letter, I started the book that became the 10th justice. And I actually researched it. In fact, I got into the Supreme Court by calling up the court. I couldn't get in uh, unless I had a press pass. I couldn't get one of those. So I called up the marshal's office who does security for the Supreme Court of the United States. 
And I said, I'm calling from AmeriCorps. We have some interns who want to come for a tour. Can you take them around? They said, sure. They said, what are their names? I said, his name is Brad Meltzer. He'll be coming alone. And this is the crack security team that, you know, made sure that they were in charge of the, the court. I got in there, um, spoke to a lot of Supreme Court clerks, and then basically wrote my novel while I was working at AmeriCorps at night and used the photocopy machines at AmeriCorps back in the day to do, originally they gave me to do those photocopies because they knew how much it cost just to do a photocopy of a book. But that was really my, where my career began was thanks to Eli, thanks to him leaving Boston, thanks to him going to AmeriCorps. And, and to this day, I'm obviously still very close with his wife, Phyllis. Uh, but that was the start of my writing career. And your writing career is infused with so much, as you've talked about many times, real detail. You've got to put the authenticity onto the page or, or readers aren't going to buy it. Uh, and that has segued, I want to get to Jack and Bobby in a second, but that's segued into so much of your <clears throat> documentary or un, or uh, scripted uh, work for History Channel. I want to hear a little bit of Brad Meltzer as host of Decoded about the cornerstone of the White House. Two stonemasons lay the cornerstone for the White House. It's the first government building in Washington. Now, descriptions of the stone vary from something small that you can carry to something that's massive. The men who placed it were brothers in one of the world's most secretive organizations. Of course, the Freemasons. The day after it's placed, the stone vanishes. This thing just disappears. Some people say that the stone was inscribed by our founding fathers. Others say it was hollow, that it contained landmark documents of great, unimagined wisdom. Many believe this is stolen by the Masons themselves, but they of course deny any involvement. Whatever the case, Nobody has seen the White House cornerstone for more than 200 years. And let me tell you right now, I want to know why. So why, Brad Meltzer? And why does a guy who comes down to Washington working for AmeriCorps become so immersed in the details and conspiracies and mysteries of history? You know, it's just what I love. I mean, that's what I gravitated to. I wasn't an English major in college. Uh, I was a history major, and it was always kind of modern American I just, it's just what I, I was attracted to. And over and over, I would just see these stories and find myself going, I'm supposed to do research on this book, but I want to know where this, you know, when I found those tunnels, when I was walk, walking through the White House when you were there, and I remember them taking me around and saying, okay, here's where the tunnels are below the White House, and then finding people in the Secret Service to say, oh, you don't, you know, there's another way to get out this way, and there's another way this way. Uh, and it was just pure fascination. So I started using them in the books. When History Channel approached me, one of the heads of the History Channel had read one of my novels about the Freemasons and about uh, the secret messages that Thomas Jefferson, the secret code he used to write in while he was president. And it was called The Book of Fate. And he said, we should do a, a show like this. And then they came to me and said, we want to do a show and it's about the Freemasons and the Freemasons are going to take over the world. And I was just like, you know, they really wanted to kind of do, it was like a Dan Brown ripoff. And, um, and I said, that's not a show. That's kind of just a setting. And they said, well, do you have real stories? And I happened to, again, for all my research had the story of that cornerstone. I said, listen, the first piece of the White House is missing. And I said, no one knows where it is. And everyone from Harry Truman to Barbara Bush has gone looking for it. Nobody knows where it is. Let's go find it. And they were like, that's a good story. And uh, as I, I just, you know, again, had this notebook full of them. They kept asking for more ideas. And I just, I'm such a history nerd that I had a ton of them. So we just kept looking for more. Tell me about your collaboration with the presidents, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton. Yeah, those are, you know, it's, and again, listen, I write fiction. My thrillers are all fiction. I can make up whatever I want. But there's nothing like being able to go to the most powerful man in the world and ask him, what's it like to sit in that office? And um, I, it's funny, Clinton, I know 
in a strange way, I knew him first because of just the connections to Eli, and I know he'd read the books, and Eli had sent him the books. He'd written me notes about it. Um, he was very kind. Let me come up to the office in Harlem. I hadn't done as much research with him as uh, I got a letter one day from George H.W. Bush, Sr., the dad. And um, and when he got in contact, just because he liked the novels and, and liked the research, and I was so struck by the idea that he was writing to me because, you know, I actually thought it was fake because when I used to work for the Senate Judiciary Committee, we used to just take the pen signing machine and, and Senate Judiciary Committee stationery. I used to write to my friends, tell them they were being deported, you know, and, <laughs> and that works, right? But um, And I just thought it was fake. And he said, no, no, they, he likes the books. And I said, can I come to, to see you in Houston and, and ask you a few questions? And I just became obsessed with what is it like when you're once the most powerful person in the world and the next day you have to stop at red lights like the rest of us, right? What do you? What happens in your life when you know you've peaked and everything else is going to be downhill? And he's just been very kind over the years with actually the last three of my books, just answering questions when I get to that point. In fact, one of the things he gave me that I, I'm always proud of is uh, I wrote a book called The Inner Circle, and I opened it with the idea that uh, each president, when they leave, and this is a true story, Ronald Reagan, when he left the White House, put a note in the desk for Bush, who put a note in the desk for Clinton, who put a note in the desk for W, and so on and so forth, the greatest modern secret tradition of the presidency. And I said to him, you know, what can you put other things in that note, or what would you put in there, and could you put secret messages in there? And I opened my email, and it was a letter from Bush, and he, he had actually sent me the private letter that he wrote to Bill Clinton that no one had ever seen before. He'd never showed it to anyone. He gave it to me. And I, and I first thought, oh, my gosh, it must be a secret code. So I started looking to see if the, you know, the fourth letter of every word spelled out, I hate you, Bill. I was like, what is this thing? And it was just obviously a generous, amazing letter. And he was just kind enough to send it my way. And the relationship between those two men over the decades since they both served has been such a fascinating evolution, hasn't it? Oh, I've been in the office, actually, when they've been off or about to get on the plane with Clinton. And they love him. I mean, they really do. I mean, Barbara makes great quips and she does great jokes. Mrs. Bush is, is obviously a very funny lady. But I think um, for two guys who at one point in time wanted to kill each other, I think found real respect. And, and, I, and I don't think people realize the respect came uh, because one year, and I forget whose funeral they were going to, but they were on the plane together. And maybe it was, I forget what it was for, but they told me the story is that Bill Clinton actually uh, offered to sleep on the floor. You know, there's one bed there for the president, and uh, and he gave it to he gave it to 41 instead of taking it for himself. And I think Senior Bush Senior just was, uh, you know, just thought that that's you know, there's someone shows respect and is a class act, and uh, it's amazing to watch the mutual respect society develop. Well, the big mutual respect society that I have is for you and Steve Cohen. Uh, we were. As Steve knows, and you know, Brad, in the late 90s, I had a chance to uh, pitch and develop a pilot for Lifetime Television, <clears throat> and I got nothing more done than the pilot. It was an amazing experience to go up to Toronto and shoot it, and I think Steve was watching every step that I made through the process. And then I sort of, unfortunately, I spent another year pitching different ideas, but then kind of gave up, came back to Washington and said, I'm going to make my life here. But Steve said, no, there's there's ideas here, and we got to make something happen. And he teamed up with you, and w- working with Greg Berlanti in the early part of the 2000s, you brought to the screen Jack and Bobby. And I want to hear just the first minute of your first show of your, I think, 22 or 23 episodes. The greatest of the American presidents were inarguably people of extraordinary strengths and weaknesses complicated individuals undertaking an impossible task. Could a single image ever be expected to tell their story 
Ever since the first presidential photograph was taken, James K. Polk in 1848, each president has had one defining image associated with him or her. Outcome of the Second World War, ending the Vietnam conflict, Spencer Harvey's resignation in the wake of corporate scandal, President Hellman's first visit to Africa after the plague of 2018. No documentary about President McAllister's administration could be complete without mention of this photo, taken just before his election in 2040. It tells a story of a fiercely determined man on the cusp of wresting victory away from the jaws of near certain defeat. Now, whether it tells the whole story, well, that's another question altogether, isn't it? Brad Meltzer, that's John Elward as Victor Sable in episode one, talking about President Jack McAllister. I just well, hear that mu- that music. I gotta, I have to look up and see who did that music. It sounds like Tom- Thomas Newman, who's one of my favorite uh, people to do. I-, I just hear that music and I get all teary. What an amazing experience for you and Scoop. That was that was a, a once in a. I mean, here we are, two schmucks who go out from from Washington, D.C., go out to L.A., and we pitch the TV show, right? And we're, it's literally like, it's Seinfeld. We are pitching the show to NBC. I know exactly I mean, what You know it what is. it's like. You know how it is. And then we get it on the air, and suddenly we're, it, we're, we're in a place where we're filming, it, and then they say, you know what? We love it so much, we're going to put it on the air. And suddenly we're going, we're at the upfronts, and they're announcing this new show, and there's a cast there, and it was surreal. It still is to me. I still can't believe we pulled that off. And I know it was only 22 episodes, but I love that we're still on the list of kind of the best, most canceled, you know, the best canceled shows. And and we got extra love because we got canceled. But I'll take it any day. I'm proud that we put that out there. Cult classic. Some of the cast members was... Listen, we have... Let, let, let's just talk about our cast. So we have Bradley Cooper. Yeah. Okay. One of the biggest stars in Hollywood was... People forget was the TA on there. We have Matt Long. We have basically the cast of Mad Men. So yep. we have Matt Long. We have John Jess- Slattery. We have uh, Jessica Perret, Jessica uh, obviously uh, Don Draper's wife. Um, we have Logan Lerman, who Scoop and I actually wrote his first kiss. Uh, you know, went on to do now all the Percy Jackson movies, but he had his first kiss in real life in a scene that we wrote. And I later heard, you know, we were like, Logan, is that your first kiss? And he was like, it was. And I and we had to write that. Now imagine you're, you know, a 12-year-old boy kissing, I think she was like an 18-year-old girl. And uh, and he had to do that for us. So the cast has gone on to incredible things when we look back at them. Uh, and, and it, you know, again, if you look, the, it, it's the same theme as these books we're working on today, right? Jack and Bobby uh, to this is it goes right back to that ordinary people change the world theme. It re- I mean, I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what your job is. I believe in regular people and their ability to affect change in this world. And it took me a while to realize that over and over, that was a the theme in everything I worked on. And that's where I'm Amelia Earhart came from. That's where I am Abraham Lincoln came from. It's just that belief in reminding people, you know, that there is a power and potential in each of us. So when your kids were born, you wrote uh, Heroes for My Son, Heroes for My Daughter. You wrote about people like the Wright Brothers, Jim Henson. And as we get into these uh, two books out today from Dial Books, uh, let's hear just a little bit of Daniel day Lewis's Abraham Lincoln. You drafted half the men in Boston. What do you think their families think about me? The only reason they don't throw things and spit on me is because you're so popular. I can't concentrate on, on British mercantile law. I don't care about British mercantile law. I might not even want to be a lawyer. It's a sturdy profession. 
And a useful one. Yes, and I want to be useful, but now, not afterwards. I ain't wearing them things, Mr. Slade. They never fit right. The missus will have you wear them. Don't think about it. You're delaying. That's your favorite tactic. Be useful. You won't tell me no, but the war will be over in a month. Brad Meltzer, a sturdy profession and a useful one. You, uh, you've obviously used the law and writing so much in your career, but the law is in your rearview mirror, um, and now out with these two new books. What else will happen in this series for you and uh, Chris? You and Chris. Yes, you know, um, our goal here is not just to say, here's Amelia Earhart, here's I am Abraham Lincoln. Uh, our goal is to help uh, parents build a library. So we go with from here in June is I am Rosa Parks, and in September is I am Albert Einstein. And we've signed on. We're already doing six. We're hoping to do 600. I mean, we. I, my goal is I just firmly believe that the definition of hero is broken today in America. I feel like we're at a point where society looks around, doesn't even care about the presidency anymore, has barely any respect for it anymore. And I don't care who's in office. You should always respect it. And I think you have two choices. You either complain about it or you do something about it. And this is what I can do. Um, I can tell stories. That's all I ever know how to do. And I think when people see these stories, in fact, it's funny. I use my kids as the guinea pigs for it. So they read I Am Rosa Parks already. And my youngest son was being bullied. Basically, a kid wouldn't let him sit at the cafeteria table with my five-year-old. And my 12-year-old goes up to me and goes, you know what, Theo, you should be like Rosa Parks. And my little one goes, I'm going to. I'm going to be like Rosa Parks and stand up to that bully. And my wife told me the story, and she's got tears in her eyes as they're saying it. And it sounds obviously ridiculous because it's these little white kids telling that that they're Rosa Parks. But, man, that message sinks in. And when you tell and share the greatness of, I think what we do about politicians and history today is we complain about it. And I think what we need to do is celebrate it. And when we do, and you share those stories with your kids, you won't believe the reaction. Because when they hear the story, that's why they remember. It's like why the Bible, the Bible is not set up like the Ten Commandments. It's not just rules, it's stories. And the reason it's, it's maintained for so long is because we can easily remember those stories and continue to tell them. I thought it was kind of high time to, to really tell those stories about history and the great heroes. Brad Meltzer, master storyteller, Christopher Iliopoulos, illustrator of the new books, I Am Amelia Earhart, I Am American, I Am Abraham Lincoln, out this week. Thanks for giving this both to me and for my children and for this current generation. Hopefully your visions will come true. Thanks, Josh. Only a short time ago, Amelia Earhart checked over every detail of her $80,000 flying laboratory in preparation for her round-the-world flight. This was to have been her greatest achievement, a sky dash of 28,000 miles. With her husband, George Palmer Putnam on right, she discussed the hazardous course which had been plotted for her by Fred Noonan, the navigator who embarked with Miss Earhart upon this great flight, a flight which was to have marked her retirement to aeronautical research. POTUS. This is POTUS. History in the making. Sirius XM 124. As promised at the top of the hour, our first full-fledged comedian on polyoptics, Paul Mercurio of The Paul Mercurio Show. Paul and I have a great mutual friend in common, a prior guest of this program, Norm Elagem. And when Norm was in New York most recently, said, you got to have Paul on your show and Paul have you on your show. And I've been listening to his podcast ever since. An incredibly funny guy and a great 
uh, question asker himself. So the tables will be turned a little bit on Paul, and maybe <laughs> I'll return the favor in a couple of weeks. But Paul Mercurio of the Paul Mercurio Show, my fellow New Englander. Yes, nice to have. Let's have some chowder. Let's have some chowder. Let's go back to the home to the home turf. Big game tomorrow, Patriots against uh, the Broncos. This is what, what do you I'm think? talking about? What do you mean? What do I think? I think we crushed them forty-two to seventeen. I think we're all over them. I think that we we don't even need Gronkowski. How could you be that big and be injured all the time? What is going on? And Tom Brady, people feel sorry for him because he doesn't have any of his real strong starters. We don't have two defensive backs that are normally in there. It's like, look, you can't feel sorry for Tom Brady. He's a multi-billionaire millionaire married to, like, the most beautiful Giselle. woman. Yeah, a bad day for him is when they're having shower sex and her ring goes down the toy, down the drain <laughs> and clogs bathroom number 17 in their mansion. That's a bad day for Tom Brady. Don't feel sorry for the guy. I, I won't, but when the Patriots dispatched the Colts last weekend, they had a couple celebrity visitors to the locker room, one of whom was Sir Charles, Charles Barkley. I want to hear a little bit of what he said in the locker room and create a little buzz this week. I'm impressed with the Patriots organization. Because, like, like, they've lost so many people. And y'all take it, y'all, y'all take winning for granted. Y'all do. And let me tell y'all something. When Bill Pelichick leaves and Tom Brady leaves, y'all team gonna fucking suck. <laughs> Paul, would you put that in your TV show about sports? <laughs> I would have, I would have, uh, I maybe would have chosen a couple of other words, but yeah, I think he's right, but I don't think we take them for granted. I think that we know what we have in that, you know, but I do think, yeah, I think the only problem I have with Belichick is he over GMs, meaning like sometimes he gets so strident, like I don't need any stars, you go and, 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 and I'll, I'll, I'll use the guy that's the janitor and I'll throw him in there and I'll train him how to be a great player. And I think that puts us in a hole sometimes, especially defensively. So I would fire him as a GM, but keep him as a coach. There, I said it. Okay. We'll, we'll, we won't pass that up to Mr. Belichick. Uh, <laughs> he won't answer anyway. Exactly. Uh, did you have experience like I did going up to the old Schaefer Stadium sitting on the aluminum seats? Oh, my God. Yeah, with my dad. And that, that was before like anybody thought to uh, sell those like foam like Patriots pads that you could sit on. And uh, I remember, like, one game, it was so cold, I stood rather than sit. Of course. It was, actually, it was actually warmer. And you go up Fox, up to Foxborough, and there's that one road. You sit in the parking lot for three hours, go home. Because there's one road, and there's, like, miles and acres and acres of forest on either side of the road. They could literally expand it and not. And basically, the only person you'd upset is, like, a, is like a, a, a guy who lives in the woods with a manifesto and no electricity. But they never expanded the road. It was the worst traffic jam ever. Paul Mercurio, you are a graduate of Georgetown Law School. Yes. Uh, you create, you started your career in corporate law, doing mergers and acquisitions, <laughs> uh, but it didn't really satisfy you, and you you started a, a little a little uh, uh, moonlighting gig. What was that all? Yeah, about? I started uh, when I got out of law. I always had these like short film ideas, so I I. Um, I, uh, what's some, one of the first paychecks I got, I bought a camera and I started making short films. And then I started writing jokes as a hobby. And uh, I got to see Jay Leno perform at a private function. And, you know, one of these big corporate functions where they hire, like, expensive talent. It was, like, 100 people there. And I had all these jokes written. Like, I was writing them in a secret passworded file. Now, I was, I'm a middle-class Italian kid from Rhode Island, so I don't come from money. And here I was in... New York City working on huge merger deals like on the cover of the Wall Street Journal with code names and everything else. So just to give you context, so I'm writing these silly jokes. I go to this event and I go up to Leno afterwards. I say, I don't know if you need jokes. And he goes, yeah, 
and he really does talk. He talks like like helium getting let out of a balloon. Yeah, he's, he's from our neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. Right. He's he's your one of your guys. He he talks about that and started in Boston. So. Uh, I figure he's going to throw them out, right? He calls me back. He goes, hey, come over here. He goes, well, you might want to put your name and your phone number on here so I know how to reach you. I was so nervous. Like, I didn't write. Right? And a day later, he calls me. He says, I liked your stuff. And uh, you come on The Tonight Show and uh, send, start sending jokes out. And I will send me jokes. And I'll do them on The Tonight Show. And I'll pay you for what I use. Week later, does one of my jokes. Pays me 50 bucks. Blows my head off my shoulder. Do you so, remember what the joke was? It was a joke about this old house. And how that doesn't reflect reality. <laughs> Another great New England episode. Right, exactly. Uh, like the contractors are always like under budget, clean shaven, right? And everything. But in reality, they're like, you know, drunk, hitting on your wife, showing crack and like not doing any kind of work at all. And, and it, you know, he did it better than I'm doing it, but he got a really big laugh. And it was the most, po- he paid me $50 for the joke. And Josh, it was the most powerful thing that ever happened to me. So now I started to live a secret double life because he said, go try the jokes out. And when I go to, I would go to these dive bars around New York City working open mic nights. So I would have a dinner break at seven o'clock. I'd get in a town car. I'd go downtown, take my suit coat off my tie, try to look as downtown and edgy as I could. And I go to the worst places in the Bowery of New York. One of them was called Downtown Beirut 2. Two. Two. Now, they were either franchising these hell holes or Israeli fighters took out one. And... You had to have comeback lines for drunk hecklers, and I got really good at it. And one night, I'm waiting to go on stage, and there's a guy playing Blowing in the Wind, badly. There's poets and folk singers. He's like, yeah, my friend. Scuffle at the pool table, because it was, it, this place was like, there was a di- guy that dealt drugs out of there, a pimp worked out of there, a hooker worked out of there. There was a sign on the men's room door that says the bathroom is to only be used to go to the bathroom, not to cut coke. Thank you, the management. That was actually a sign on the door, right? So, I'm waiting to go on stage, scuffle at the pool table, fight breaks out. And there's a guy cuts another guy with a box cutter. And a guy starts bleeding. But you haven't done your gig yet. I haven't done my gig yet. I'm waiting to go on. There's a guy on stage. I'm next. You're not so, going to give up your gig just because of a little blood <laughs> in the room? Well, that, well, I'm thinking I, I think I'm thinking the show's up. Because he's literally like wandering around. He's drunk. And he's bleeding a lot. But like he's so drunk, he doesn't know. He's like, I'm going to get him. And his girlfriend's like, oh, my God. Look at my boyfriend. I'm gonna, I know. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to get him. And answer my friend. The guy just keeps playing. Like, he's not getting off. Cops show up. Walkie-talkies around. Mayhem. I'm thinking it's over. The MC goes up. He goes, all right, let's keep the show going. Who wants a little comedy? How about Paul McCurry? So I go on stage and I say, nice to be here at downtown Beirut 2. I always wanted to follow a slashing, which I thought was a pretty funny line. Well, the guy who got slashed heard me say that, and he turns back to me. He goes, hey, he goes, you make it fun of me. I don't need to take that. And he takes all these bloody napkins, and he wads them up, and he throws them at me. And they land on my shirt, and they stick to my Brooks Brothers white shirt. So now a normal person says, okay, this is God's message. Get off stage. I stay. And I get rid of the napkins and I keep going. And it's just nobody's paying attention. It's just a complete mess. The guy turns back to me and he goes, the guy who got cut, he goes, hey, he goes, what are you doing anyway? I go, I'm trying to tell jokes. He goes, oh, yeah. He goes, I like jokes. He turns back to the crowd. Hey, everybody, shut the hell up. This guy's trying to tell jokes. And the whole place shuts up. And from that, an amazing career is born. Uh, your collaboration with... Uh with Stuart and The Daily Show, Stephen Colbert. Mm. How did you make the transition from lawyer who eventually said, I, I can't do this anymore. I got to stay focused on the craft and, and the, <clears throat> the creativity of comedy and then go into uh, two shows that are so focused on politics and events and putting a humorous spin on the day's events? Well, I, um, you know, I, at that point... I was living that secret double life for almost two years and I was about to have a nervous breakdown 
because nobody, nobody in either world knew anything. I was getting in trouble at work because they knew something was up. Like that night, I showed back up with a blood stain on my shirt, and I, I had to walk into a conference room with a bunch of lawyers and bankers, and the guy, my senior partner, screaming at me because I was gone for hours. He goes, where have you been? I go, uh, he goes, why do you have a blood stain on your shirt? And before I could say anything, one of the other lawyers goes, what kind of shirt is that? I go, Brooks Brothers. He goes, oh, I know how to get blood out of a Brooks Brothers shirt. Club soda, lemon juice. And another lawyer goes, no, no, Armani. That's the shirt you want. They started to argue about what was the better shirt to get blood in. So that became my life. So eventually I said, I got to either jump in full time. And I did. Let's talk about some of the uh, issues that are in the news now and how late night comedy is, is using them and, and adapting to them. A little bit from the, uh, the maybe the a few of the top 10 from Letterman this week on uh, excuses made at the Christie press conference. Uh, number three, uh, boldly took responsibility by blaming everyone but himself. Number two, announced plans to execute his uncle. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And the number one highlight of Chris Christie's press conference, interrupted press conference to smoke crack. Well, there you go. David Letterman obviously referencing Rob Ford in Toronto. Right. What do you make of uh, of what politicians are getting into these days as opposed to when you were breaking in, Paul well, Mercurio? I mean, I look, I think it's, it hasn't changed at all. I mean, you know, you look at the sex, or sex scandals, right? The Spitzer with hookers, there was, you know... Uh, uh, there was, you know, uh, uh, Wiener with the tweeting and the thing and the text and the and now this is like an old, this is old school, small time politics. I mean, you know, um, it's funny because when Christie uh, never had, uh, you know, we always had less destructive things to deal with, like say a category three superstorm. Now it's this, and who does it this way? Like who, who interferes with traffic? It's like the bully in high school that won't let you pass through the hall. Like, what is he going to do when he's president if Iran like doesn't uh, doesn't uh, adhere to sanctions? What is he going to do? Mess with their internet? And then, and then the, just the whole wording of it. It's time, you know, the the, the from Bridget the uh, the the text uh, the email. It it's time for a traffic jam in Fort Lee. What is it? What is she like? Dirty Harry? Like who talks like that? Like you know? Oh, go ahead, make my day, move my cones. Like I just feel like. It's almost, in a way, kind of welcome because it's like old school, small time politics that's just so ridiculous. Talk about old school, small time politics. I want to really go back to uh, to your core, Providence, Rhode Island. Hear a little bit about your great mayor, Buddy Cianci. For all the candidates who steal themselves to shake hands endlessly, there are always a few who positively thrive in a life lived almost entirely in the public eye. And so one politician's forced march can be another's reason for living. I'm a mayor now. Uh, this is my fifth term I'll be running for. And that's a long time. And, and you really and truly have got to want it. You've got to love it. You've got to be dedicated to it. And you've got to like to do what I'm about to go do in that crowd right now. Hey, how are you? All right, thank you. How are you? How you doing? Good to see you. Nice to see you. A character like Buddy gives a lot of material to Providence Comics. You, that's that. a great clip. Where did you get that clip? We find these things. You're brilliant. Buddy Cianci is a classic, classic, small-time politician who at one time was, he spoke at the Republican National Convention. He was the keynote speaker. He was on the rise as a national star, charismatic, but a Napoleonic complex, a little pudgy man with a bald head and a bad wig. His parents had a lot of money in Providence, 
And my mother was appointed to the school committee in Providence under him and worked with him. Very Machiavellian and but incredibly charismatic guy. So for people to understand Providence politics, you need to understand this story. Now, I'm Italian and he's Italian and there's a lot of Italians, a lot of Irish and there's some Jewish people. There's a big, fairly big Jewish population. Uh, and I'm 100% Italian, okay? But we're not like traditional Italian in my family. Like we don't have the plastic on the furniture thing. In fact, our house was <laughs> our house was a pigsty growing up. This is how bad our house was. Someone broke into the house because the focus of our life was my mother's furniture store. Someone broke into the house and they took the stereo. They didn't touch another thing in the house. This is a true story. Uh, a Providence, Rhode Island cop comes over to takes a police report, stands in the middle of the living room, surveys the damage, and he goes, oh, my God. What kind of an animal would make a mess like this? <laughs> he thought the guy broke in and ransacked the house. I'm like, yeah, the guy was crazy. Look, he threw a bra on the lampshade and left salami out all day, officer. Uh, but the other part of the stereotype of being Italian is um, uh, the mafia part. I do have a, a cousin who deals uh, in small-time mob ways. He's, he runs numbers, and he sells stuff out of the trunk of his car, including car alarms. I'm not making this up. Car alarms he stole out of other people's cars. And uh, he came dressed to my father's funeral like John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever. A fluorescent orange silk shirt, unbuttoned gold chains, white patent leather belt, white slacks, white mesh loafers, no socks because it's the summer. But you could have put powder on your feet to keep them dry. But Bobby, my cousin, being the guido, put too much powder. So every time he'd step toward the casket, puffs of white smoke would come out of the tops of his shoes. Now, that's context for you for Providence and the mentality. Buddy Cianci's wife was cheating on him with a local contractor. Buddy Cianci had a driver per, you know, the rules and regulations, a state trooper. They took this guy to an abandoned warehouse and Buddy slapped the guy around himself and uh, put a cigarette out on the guy. The guy brought charges. Buddy got kicked out of office. There was a loophole in the Constitution of Rhode Island, which says if you don't serve time, which he didn't, you can run again. He ran again and won by a landslide. And they interviewed this little gray-haired Italian woman on Federal Hill in Providence, which is a big Italian area. And they said, man, why would you vote for the guy after he did what he did? And he went, this is classic. This tells you everything about Rhode Island. He goes, hey, she goes, the guy was messing around with his wife. He deserved what he got. And that was that was Buddy right there. I mean, the stories of, of people like Buddy and the stories that you find for the Paul Mercurio show, the podcast, I mean, where do you come up with them? And tell me about, like, one of your most recent ones. I think you had Sir Paul McCartney on. Yeah, it was, uh, well, that came about, uh, Paul McCartney was doing the Colbert Report. We started talking, I, I, I'm walking through the hallway, and Paul McCartney's standing there. He had just done rehearsal. It was a special hour show built around him. And he's standing against the wall, leaning against the wall, all low, like, Nobody around him. And it was so jarring, in part because it was Paul McCartney, but because he was all alone. Like, he didn't have a handler, nothing. Not a parrot on his shoulder, nothing. So I'm like, should I say hi? Should I? I'm like, look, I'm never going to meet the guy. So I go up to him, I introduce him. We start talking. He couldn't have been nicer. What's your name, Paul? That's a good name. One thing leads to another. He, um, he goes, uh, what do you do? Stand up. We start talking. We're talking for like 15 minutes. Now, the whole time I'm talking to him, on the outside, I'm really cool. On the inside, I'm like, I'm talking to Paul McCartney. Like, I turned into one of these, like, 16-year-old girls. And I was getting super close to his face. Like, I kept inching closer because he's iconic, right? So I was, like, I was like as close as, like, those baboons on the National Geographic that clean chimps off it, that clean ticks off its mate like that, right? And then I finally decide, you know what? I'm just going to end the conversation. I leave. And I go into the bathroom, and I start hyperventilating. Like, oh, my God, I talked to call my wife. Like, I just talked to Paul McCartney. And then I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to ask him to do my podcast because I'm delusional. Now, this guy's 71. In my mind, I'm like, does he even know what a podcast is? So I go back into the uh, to his dressing room and I go, uh, 
I don't know, would you do my podcast? And he goes, yeah, sure. Just like that. Amazing. And I reached out, you know, I don't know if you remember, like, there was always a moment probably in anybody's time where there was this girl, this guy that you were really into and you wanted to ask out, but you felt intimidated and you finally get up the gumption, I'm going to ask, get over it, she'll say no, and we'll move on. That's happened to me, but he says yes, and I was frozen. I didn't know what to say. He goes, yeah, I'll do it. And I'm like, he goes, how would we do it? And I like, I blurted out, I'll come to London. And he's looking at me like, what? And then he goes, uh, I go, well, we'll make it easy. You could do it on the phone. I actually said to Paul McCartney, biggest uh, musician in a century, uh, you could do it uh, from your apartment on a phone, <laughs> naked on the toilet, like I was out of my mind. And then he goes, look, I'll tell you what. I said, I will get your assistance information and we'll coordinate that way. He goes, no, no, no. This is the most surreal moment. He looks me in the eye and he goes, you and I will do it. I go, what? He goes, you and I will do it. They'll just muck it up. Let's just exchange numbers. That's great. So now I'm exchanging numbers with Paul McCartney. I think, okay, he's nice. He's not going to really call, whatever. An hour goes by, hour and a half. We shoot the show. Um, goes great. I'm now heading to The Daily Show for The Daily Show taping. My phone rings. I don't recognize the number. It rings to voicemail, and this is the message on my phone. Hey, Paul. It's Paul McCartney here. Um, I'm going to ring you back in five minutes to do the podcast thing. I've got some time now. Otherwise, I'm going to run out of time. So if you're there in five minutes' time, you got me. Okay, bye. Iconic. I mean, that's so now, amazing. I'm standing at the corner of 11th Avenue and 54th Street and just gone from the highest of highs, meeting Paul McCartney, to the lowest of lows because I just screened a call from Paul McCartney and I'm never going to get him back, right? I call him back. He picks up the phone. He goes, okay, I can do it now. And we talked about music and process. And one of the things we talked about, we have a clip um, where he talks about you know, they couldn't tour anymore because the screaming was so loud that they couldn't hear the music. So they just went into the studio and started making albums. And he talks about the making of Sgt. Pepper's uh, Lonely Hearts Club Land, which is uh, this, this clip. By the time we got fed up of touring because we couldn't really hear ourselves, and it was all that was getting a bit boring, you know, at right. that point. Because we'd really, we'd worked uh, very hard. You know, we'd, we'd worked sort of, over 300 days out of a year, you know, we would work. Right. Uh, so, so just the toll of the sheer physical working um, led us to have this idea. We thought, well, let's just let's just make a record. Let's just can't stop touring. Go into the studio, and we'll make a record. And we we'll say, well, let the let the record go on tour. So okay. really interesting, and and uh, just. You know, he and he also in the interview talks about sort of making that transition from being one of four people in a band in the Beatles to running and being in charge of Wings and being the guy. So I'm really, really proud of it. And we just really interesting conversation about writing music and creating music. Let's talk process a yeah. little bit more because uh, you had Jay Moore on your podcast recently. Yeah. And he was talking about something intensely personal which is dealing with stage fright mm. and what you need to do when you're getting up on the stage in front of people, which you, Paul McCurio, do day in, day out, week in, week out. Yeah. There was an amazing example of this uh, just two weeks ago, and that was Michael Bay uh, at the Consumer Electronics yeah. Show in Las Vegas. I want to hear a little bit of that. Yeah. Michael, um, you know, you're known for such unbelievable action. What, what inspires you? How, how do you come up with these unbelievable ideas? Um, I create visual worlds that are so beyond every, everyone's normal life experiences. And Hollywood is a place that creates uh, a viewer escape. And um, what I try to do is, I, as a director, I try to... Uh, the type is all off, sorry, but I'll just wing this. Tell us what you think. Yeah, we'll, just, we'll, we'll wing it right now. Um, I, take, I try to take people on an emotional ride. 
And um, the curve? How does it? Uh, how do you think it's going to impact uh, how viewers experience your movies? Excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, let's thank Michael Bay for joining us. Paul Mercurio, I work with politicians and CEOs all the time, and we work we use teleprompters and mm -hmm. auto cues, and that is their security blanket. Mm -hmm. You are on stage every night of the week, mm -hmm. just you and the audience and nothing between you. Talk about the process of understanding and figuring out how to get up on that stage and not turn into a bowl of mush. Well, you know, it's funny because... A couple of things. First of all, on the Michael Bay thing, I feel bad for him, but people have said that Michael Bay could not make a watchable low-budget movie, and I just proved that he could right there. He, it was pretty entertaining. But I understand it because, look, in defense of him, he's not a performer. He's out of his element. He's behind the camera. He's a different. He's a creative genius, but in, a, in, in his own way. I'm not reciting an act for me as a stand-up at this stage. I'm really conveying stories that I'm passionate about that I want to talk about. I have the benefit of rehearsing you know, you talked about working with CEOs. Or they don't, sometimes they don't have the benefit of rehearsing over and over and over. And I do. I do 20, 30 sets a week sometimes. So I'll run a joke over and over and over again. So the words are ingrained in my head. But, you know, the, 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 the thing is, psychologically, and Jay Moore talked about it, and he's a very established stand-up and his panic attacks, the audience has all the power. You just can't ever let them know that. It's sort of like dating a person of the opposite sex. Like if you try too hard with an audience, they're like, well, you're a little too needy. But if you're a little bit too off-putting, they're like, well, screw you. I don't want to be here either then, right? So you have to find the balance. And if you start to worry about what the audience is thinking, then you're screwed because you're not in your element. Um, uh, Jay talked about Buddy Hackett asking the question, what's your monitor on stage? Meaning how distracted are you out of your act? on a scale of one to a hundred, one being desirable, like you're completely in it, looking at the person. And, and what happens on stage where stage fright comes in and it takes over is where you start, I think you start to panic. Oh, the audience isn't, they're not getting this joke. What am I going to do? What am I, how do I? So what you have to do as a stand-up is you have to bifurcate your mind and part of you is doing your act and in it and talking and telling stories and connecting and making eye contact. And another part of you is listening to the reaction and editing as you go so that if it's not going well and they're not interested in my jokes about bottled water, I switch gears and talk about jokes about cell phone. Actors can't do that. Actors is a different discipline. To be a great actor, you have to be in moment, in character, in relationship with your acting partner in the scene and nothing else. You can't step out of yourself and listen to yourself. We are headed... Uh Paul Mercurio, to a, a major milestone in comedy, and that is the passing of the torch from uh, Jay Leno to Jimmy Fallon, The Tonight Show, moving from Burbank, California, back to New York City. You know, Jay was so uh, generous to you as you started your career, and you and Jay, I heard, talking about how many people uh, Leno has helped uh, move up through the ladder and get their first shot. Yeah. I just want to hear it. And Jay has created such this niche of of comedy, but also serious conversation with serious people. A little bit of him with former President Bush uh, just a couple weeks ago. Now, I know you've avoided talking policy for the last six or seven years. Explain why. I don't think it's good for the country to have a former president criticize his successor. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Now, 
Now, President Obama's kind of getting all the late night jokes now. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> Better him than me. You are there. Yeah. <laughs> Paul Mercurio, Jay Leno's place in the legacy of American comedy and what uh, Fallon's arrival means for your craft? Um, I Look, Jay, uh, not even because he, you know, helped me get my start. Jay will go down as, you know, one of the best stand-ups that ever worked, you know, because he... He was like, first of all, he was an animal. He talks about on my podcast, not taking any work when he went to L.A. And he, he started in, in Boston area, grew up not far from where you grew up and, uh, and uh, just outside of Boston. And he would live in fr- sleep on friends floors, live in his car because he didn't want uh, the need for money to drive his art. He just wanted to be pure and do stand up. And in nightclubs, he was like one of the funniest guys. I remember seeing him in a club, really a theater at this point, when he was doing Letterman at 12.30, Letterman's late night show, regularly. So he would go on every week, every other week, like, what's my beef, Jay? And uh, What's your beef, Jay? Like, really funny. He had this joke. He goes, <clears throat> and this is a way to make commentary <clears throat> in a smart, funny way. Uh, it was so long ago. It was when uh, Chicken McNuggets had just first come out. And he says... Uh, let me tell you about Chicken McNuggets. This is Leonard. He goes, uh, uh, people, uh, I, 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 you could take a box of Chicken McNuggets, put them on the ground, open a lid. A chicken could walk up to that box, look inside and say, I see nothing that offends me here. <laughs> now, that's a great joke, you know. And, and Jay, <laughs> Jay, um, Jay had that ability and still does to like sort of make smart commentary in a way, even on a subject. That's what's hard. To, it's called being hacky. Sometimes it's hard... To, to not be hacky about a premise that's been done a gazillion times, like McDonald's jokes, and he found a way to do that. Um, and then, you know, what he did with The Tonight Show was, you know, he he definitely brought in a big audience, and, you know, he has a lot of stand-ups, musicians, actors get their start. So, you know, I, you know, I think he's done, you know, um, a great job. And now, Fallon, you know, I like what he did with the show. Like, it's very kind of young. It's got a kind of a looser feel in a way. And I think he's, I think he's going to be good. You know, I think it's going to be like a fun show. I like sort of the parlor games that they do and some of that kind of stuff, you know. I mean, the whole, look, the world's filled with, you know, I mean, there's never going to be a shortage of topics. Well, uh, Paul McCurio, you are unfortunately having to be on the West Coast uh, this weekend while our team is uh, in Denver, yes. so you won't be able to celebrate with the rest of us in in Beantown. Uh, yeah. what, what are your gigs this weekend as the Patriots take on the Broncos? I'm going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, at the San Francisco Punchline uh, Saturday night. Two shows uh, right downtown. Great, great club. It's uh, Robert Williams got to start there, Dana Carvey, all these great comedians. And uh, I always have a great time there, so I'd love people to come out and see me. It's uh, punchlinecomedy.com. People can go there for tickets uh, or to my Facebook page or my website, paulmccurio.com. And it's the San Francisco Punchline, uh, Saturday night, two shows. And at your website, you also get all your podcasts, right? Get my podcast. You can also get it on iTunes, The Paul Mercurio Show. We just have Jay Moore up. Uh, We're going to have Omar Dorsey this coming uh, Monday, who's in the new show Rake with uh, Greg Kinnear and was in the Eastbound and Down and... uh, you can hear my podcast. You can hear uh, my comedy bits. I've got all sorts of video up there, too. So, yeah. So, uh, But I love people to subscribe to my podcast, The Paul Curio Show, and come see me in San Francisco. We're going to have a blast. And, uh, and then I'm going to be celebrating all Sunday uh, when our Patriots win. I'm going to just taunt anybody that I can see. 
from White Collar Law to the greatest uh, stand-up <laughs> stages across America and, and on television. Paul Mercurio, thanks a lot for joining us hey, today. Hey, thanks for having me. This is fun. Hard-working students will be paying about $1,000 extra just to get their education. So I've called on Congress to prevent this from happening. What we said is simple. Now is not the time to make school more expensive for our young people. Oh, yeah. You should listen to the president. Or as I like to call him, the Prezi of the United Steezy. Things were heating up inside Congress's chambers behind all those closed doors. So the president made a few discreet calls across the aisle. He said, hey, let's get together on this one. Without an affordable staffer loan, where can a student turn? The Pell Grant is a beautiful thing, but with college getting more expensive, is it enough by itself to satisfy all your collegiate needs? Oh, hell no. Oh, hell no. If Congress doesn't act, it's the students who play. The right and left should join on this like Kim and Kanye. That's it for another edition of Polyoptics. Our producer is the extraordinary Katherine Caperton. You hear us here each Saturday on SiriusXM Channel 124 POTUS, Politics of the United States. Missed any previous episode? Find them all on polyoptics.com and follow us on Twitter at Polyoptics. Keep your eyes on the visual, think about how it moves you, and we'll talk about it next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Josh King, and you're on POTUS. <laughs>